Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. And a hush came over the crowd. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I want to give a thanks to some folks who really provisioned our holiday party this year. Uh, Fairytale Brownies, Over the Moon Cookies and Creamery, Rosa Mexicana, and Acme Bread. So thanks to all of them for the good treats. Well, let's get started. We're coming to you from the Toby Family Auditorium at the Commonwealth Club, and it is our year-end, holiday-adjacent, week-to-week political roundtable for Wednesday, December 11th, 2019. Holiday-adjacent. Yes. yes. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> and whatever holiday it is you're celebrating. Um, we'll, of course, end this week-to-week year uh, talking about what everyone's been talking about at the end of this year, which is impeachment. It's also the talk of the social media world, including, of course, Twitter where someone named Jay Railing reacted to claims that Democrats just hate the president. Railing wrote, quote, Trump is not being impeached because people hate him. He's being impeached because he broke the law. Being booed at the World Series was because people hate him. <laughs> Very good. Let's get going. Good job, Jay. Uh, I'm John Zipper. I'm your host for Week to Week. And on today's program, we are, of course, going to talk about the impeachment process, plus the new trade deal, election results and election anticipation, and a review of 2019. And, of course, we'll send you off with our live news quiz and a chance to win some chocolate. Everyone's welcome at the Commonwealth Club. doesn't matter where you are on the political spectrum. You're welcome here. Any opinions expressed up here are those of the speakers and, of course, not of the Commonwealth Club. Let's meet our panelists for today. I'm going to start at the far end of the stage with Tim Anaya. He's the Communications Director for the Pacific Research Institute, the co-host of PRI's Next Round podcast, the former Director of Writing for the California Assembly Republicans, and he's on Twitter at Tom Anaya. So welcome back, Tom. Next to him is C.W. Nevius, a columnist for the Santa Rosa Press Democrat, and he's on Twitter at... C.W. Nevius. Easy. <laughs> and next to me is Melissa Kane, a veteran political analyst, journalist, and lawyer. So welcome back, Melissa. Thank you. I love how you start by disavowing any connection to us. It's like, uh, <laughs> I have no idea just, who you know, these people are. Whatever these crazy are. people say, um, not our, not our issue. Yeah. There are question cards spread throughout the room, of course. Write down some questions, and they'll be brought up to me, and we'll try to work as many as we can into our conversation today. I have a special request, though. Toward the end of the program, we're going to kind of do a 2019 review, and one of the categories is the political person of the year. So the person who, for better or worse, had the biggest political impact this year. So if maybe you want to make a suggestion or a nomination, write it down and send that up. Zippers with two Ps. Yes. (laughs) It's rigged. Um, Anyway, we'll try to share some of those as well when we get to that topic. Now, on to our round table. This week, Democrats in the U.S. House of Representatives unveiled two articles of impeachment against the president. They will charge him with abuse of power regarding the Ukraine affair and with obstruction of Congress. Melissa, let's start with you. And this is the, just the big question that really lets you go any direction you want with it, which is at what stage are we in this impeachment process? Are we far along? Because we had heard originally it might it would have been over by now had the initial timeline been adhered to. Now they're talking about maybe a vote before Christmas. 
where are we? And, and as well as if you could, what process is, what is the actual process from here on out? Impeachment? Is that, is that a thing? <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Uh, so uh, where are we? So uh, we've been hearing, and uh, Mark Desaulnier, congressman um, from the East Bay, uh, said months ago that probably by Christmas there will be a vote. So tonight, actually, for anyone here live, thank you, because right now the Judiciary Committee is is debating... It passed already? Uh, it already passed? Oh, well, there, there you go. Well, <laughs> so oh, it was supposed to... Well, uh, that whole thing. It was Thanks supposed a to, lot. Come was... to start again tomorrow morning. Yeah, now you gave away the ending. Um, well, it was something like 24 Democrats, 17 Republicans um, on the committee, so not a, not a shock necessarily. You okay? Okay. Yep. Uh, so, uh, so it already passed and now it's going to go to the house where of course it just needs both. Each article is actually going to be voted on independently. And then it just requires a majority vote for those, both of those to pass. And then at that point, that's, that's it. He will have been impeached in the house and then it will move to the Senate for that process to play out. Now I know there's been a lot of speculation about sort of what's going to happen in the Senate. Can they circumvent this or that? But the constitution's clear here that, uh, the chief justice shall preside over the impeachment proceedings. So, uh, the idea of sort of short, giving the short shrift, sort of doing a quick vote right out the gate, um, is, is I, I don't think, um, as likely to happen. I think there will at least be some kind of pro forma thing, uh, that, that the senators have to engage in, in particular after, um, the Democrat won the governorship in Kentucky, Mitch McConnell's backyard. I think he's really looking to walk the straight and narrow to some degree when it comes to the Senate taking this up. So uh, so that's where we are. We're going to get that vote, actually. So we probably will have the impeachment before Christmas for some of y'all. Merry Christmas. <laughs> um, <laughs> for others, not so much. But uh, but whether or not it's going to be completed in the Senate before the end of the year is, you know, is a different question. It really sort of depends on what they decide to do. But the Constitution really does mandate that there be some kind of process that's overseen by the chief justice. Do we know, do we know what the Senate is going to look like? That This whole thing. John Roberts will be in charge. Will he sit at the front and call witnesses or talk to people or overrule so people? When, or? when you look at the Clinton impeachment proceedings, it was very interesting because I think it was Chief Justice Rehnquist at the time, and he got he got a lot of grief because he took his robe and he had gold bars like sewn into it, like schmancy, like just so you know who's the general in charge right now. Um, and so yeah, he got taken to task for yeah. you know judging himself for the public appearance, but he stood up front where the president pro tem stands and he presided. They did hear witnesses. I mean, it went on for several days, uh, and they you know took in evidence and he presided over sort of a full trial. Um, now it wasn't all public, right? There were some parts, especially when it came to dicier parts of the Clinton issue, uh, that were uh, that were not made public. But but then. There was an actual. It wasn't just sort of let's make a couple of arguments and go home. It was it was like a full thing. Whereas now those dicier parts would lead Fox News if that were the case, right? Um, yeah. Uh, well, aware I mean, of the dicier parts. I think many of us remember. I don't know if they did it out here. They did it in Chicago, where I was at the time, where the newspapers printed special sections with all of the dicey parts. 
probably sold a lot of issues. The dicey part. I think people are pretty disappointed in what the articles actually are because they're really, so one is, um, is uh, abuse of power uh, related to the sort of Ukraine issue and the other is obstruction related to the president's unwillingness to cooperate with congressional hearings into the Ukraine issue, which I think some people regard as kind of arresting Al Capone for tax evasion. (laughs) They're like, what about the Mueller report and all the other stuff uh, that, that uh, we're upset about. And so now I think Democrats are getting a, a bit of pressure from uh, from both sides uh, on this. I don't know about I don't know about you, but I, I feel like you know everybody. We all have that friend that goes to the movie before you went to the movie, and then you say to them, "Now don't spoil it because I'm going to see the movie." And they go, "I won't, I won't." But the dog dies at the end. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the president's going to be impeached. We're going to go to the Senate. It's not going to pass, and we're going to go to the election. You know, I mean, I I think. I think we know what's going to happen. We're going to watch it play out. But what I would say is history has the last at bat. And no president wants to be impeached. And this president obviously doesn't want to be impeached. And this is still going to be a big deal. I understand that uh, the Democrats will probably lose, but I still think it's a big deal. And I still think it's a worthwhile process. And I still think that Nancy Pelosi is doing a great job. I'll tell Nancy you said that. <laughs> but I mean, I think it's I, the problem with seeing it as a foregone conclusion is you say this is a useless exercise. It's not a useless exercise. This is worthwhile to do. And um, if after the 2020 election, it turns out that there's not that, that Trump wins again, I, I will have grave doubts about my country. But I think we will all have to reevaluate. But this is a process. And for all the people, I think, who say the system is broken and democracy is broken, this is how democracy works. It isn't always popular. It doesn't mean you only do it if you win. You do it because it's the right thing to do. And I, I think they're doing that. And as discouraging as it may be for those of us who are not fans of the president, I still think it's a worthwhile process. Tim, we, we'll get more into, the, I guess, the Democrats. Democrat strategy about this, but could you talk a bit about the Republican strategy? Because they've been quite aggressive, um, and both coming in for criticism and certainly defending the president. You know, absolutely, hard, you know, what you know, like right. a firewall. Um, what do you think of it? And if you were advising them, would you say this is the strategy to go with, or would you have something else? Right. Well, I think certainly the Republicans and all of them, when you look at the hearings that they've had, I think they were all kind of channeling their. Inner Norma Desmond, I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille. (laughs) You know, those of us who work in politics, you know, for years know, don't get between a politician and a camera. So they have certainly loved the moment of the press conferences and the hearings and all of that. I think what's been interesting with the Republican strategy has been kind of twofold. So first, you've had a strategy that actually it's a common criticism that if you're in the minority party, whether it be Democrat or Republican, that you would levy. And that's a criticism about the process. They haven't been fair to us. We can't call our witnesses, that sort of thing. You know, on a policy level, you could see those same criticisms as well. And that's great for the room. You know, you might make points in that kind of you know, the Beltway area. But at home, no one is going to look at the TV and say, you know what, I think that maybe there is something to Donald Trump being impeached, but the process was so unfair, they didn't get to call a witness at a hearing. I'm now against it. (laughs) So I get it. That's what they do. I think the other strategy, and it might get into a topic that we talk about a little later, 
The criticism that Democrats in Congress have been obsessed with impeachment and that they haven't really made any progress on any substantive issues to benefit the American people this session. And that actually has been a quite effective message point if you look at the polls and if you look at this week. You know, um, if you read the uh, freshman Democrats and those Democrats who are in very swing areas uh, of the country who barely won their elections last time or who represent Trump districts, they've put a lot of heat on the speaker to say, hey, yes, impeachment, but we need to have A, B, C, D, and E that we've done for the folks back home. So that's why you're seeing the movement on USMCA. That's why you're seeing, theoretically, I'm not a vote counter, so I guess I'll predict, you know, the Democrats are going to pass some sort of uh, prescription drug legislation. They, Um, they, They did pass, I think the House passed today, a military bill, and along with it, a parental leave legislation. There's been some talk, too, of they might get a deal on surprise medical billing before they all leave for Christmas. So that's really what that is all about, is to kind of blunt a quite effective criticism that, you know, you're just focused on impeachment and politics. Um, We were talking backstage, and these guys know that I've been doing some constitutional research. And if you look at the records of the Constitutional Convention, there is this whole debate about impeachment and how do we set it up and how hard is it. And I think it was Hamilton, although this is a Commonwealth Club, so I might actually get corrected here. Uh, I think it was Hamilton who who acknowledged that no one's ever going to use this. He said, so hard. How would you get a majority in one house and two-thirds in the other? We'll never, ever use this. And the response was, yeah, but they have four-year terms. Right. The the founding fathers really acknowledged that having shorter terms because they considered seven year, eight year lifetime terms, EGADs, um, that um, that uh, that that would be the impeachment that American people and American voters would impeach people who, uh, you know, who've done wrong. And so so the impeachment process was set up to be a high bar. It was set up to be really difficult to reach uh, because you know, at, at, at every point, you know, you're just a few years away from from removing somebody from office. And that may still be an eternity <laughs> for some folks. But but I think um, I think for a lot of people, the fact of impeachment is enough. And the removal part, I don't think anyone really thinks is going to happen, uh, but but really should put their their sort of faith and um, an effort into winning. And that's the way you actually can legitimately and without any kind of um, craziness remove somebody from office. And kind of on that point, you know, the big question is, you know, is it moving the needles in the polls? And I was, I guess I should get better reading, but I was looking at polls on the train ride over here today. And um, there were four new polls that I saw today, and they're kind of all over the map. But it's basically about a 50-50 split on the question of do you favor or oppose impeachment. I think it's one point in favor of two impeach in the real clear politics average today. So it's not really moving the needle. And then the ultimate needle is what is it going to mean for the 2020 election? Right. And if you look at the individual states, the key states for 2016 – the president is ahead or even in virtually all of those states. And, and when you see these polls, remember, um, look at the registered voters, right? Because what, what they often do is sort of poll 
adults uh, and not just registered voters. You look at registered voters, it's within the margin of error, but generally speaking, they're against, and there's a new Quinnipiac and a Monmouth poll out today that show, again, by a very narrow margin, that registered voters are against um, impeachment and removal. Now, they don't separate it out, impeachment. Some people might be for impeachment, but not removal. Right, right. So it's hard to know, but, but, but you're right, we're still very, very close. Yeah. Well, two things. One, one is I think that it's a very effective argument to say, let's let the people decide. You know, we've laid all this out. We've given you this information. In 2020, you'll have an opportunity to decide. And second, I question the needle. <laughs> These polls are more and more becoming um, kind of a shot in the dark. I was listening to the, to the Daily, the podcast the other day, and they had their pollster on. And they basically said, how could you have been so wrong in 2016? You know, you basically had Hillary Clinton in a, in a walkover. And they said, well, what we didn't do is we didn't sufficiently load the non-college-educated white voters who were the least likely to answer a, a phone call, or, to respond to a phone call and respond to the poll. So we are now loading those responses more prominently. And that, to me, just sounds like an excuse and an opportunity to put your thumb on the scale because you want to be able to represent everybody. It just seems like it's a slippery slope to start saying, here's a group that wasn't very well represented. However, we know what they're going to say. Therefore, we're going to give them more weight. I'm, I am probably, for the rest of my life, after 2016, going to be skeptical of polls. Well, just, just like every four years, there's this check on the person in the White House. Every two years, of course, you have the check both. In, obviously, that has really happened here. The Congress, you know, the House of Representatives going to the Democrats or two years into uh, Clinton's and, and Obama's term, you know, the House going to Republicans. Um, but there's also a bit of a, a way of calibrating those polls as well, because, mm-hmm. OK, so in those battleground states, how are we doing with the the adjusted polling uh, thing? And right. I'm not. I don't know the answer. Well, well, you know, Nate Silver over at 538, in his defense, after 2016, <laughs> said, um, look, what we said was, um, the, the here's how it's going to go, and it's going to go, in, there's a margin of error of three points. And if you look at it, Hillary Clinton lost by, I think, two points. So they said it's going to be close, it's going to be within three points, and it was. Uh, and so, um, to the extent that that gives you any solace in terms of polls, uh, you know, you always have to look at that margin of error and sort of bake that into your expectations. Um, because if you look at the aggregates like 538 was doing, um, and like Real Clear Politics does, uh, it can it can actually be uh, a little more accurate than, um, than we think. But we like to think polls predict. They really don't. Polls are a snapshot in time of what people are thinking. As we know, I know my, like every day, I disagree with something I did the day before. So, you know, people's opinions can change over time. And so giving you that little snapshot, that slice, uh, isn't, isn't saying here's what's going to happen. It just says here's where we are at this moment. I think it's more a reflection of the fact that, that a lot of people like me were so shocked that that's what happened, that we turned back to the polls and said, hey, I thought you told us. Well, you I, lied to us, you, polls. But, but maybe you remember the previous, was it 2000? 12 then election where it was the Republicans who were surprised. Yep. Right. You know, there, yep. was, there was fair expectation that uh, Romney would either win or at least come a lot closer. A lot closer. They, and there people were saying, you're not, you're not catching polls. the young people who don't have landlines. Yep. yep. And who, you know, who can yep. screen a call yeah. and don't want to get it. Well, and I'm very, very old. So I remember <laughs> in, I think it was 1968 when Gene McCarthy was going to sweep his way to the, to the presidency because of these young voters, because we were ready to have young voters were being active 
active and it was all, and it never happened. Yeah. It, it didn't happen. Yeah. I have a really dumb poll, and that is, I watch Stephen Colbert almost every. <laughs> I, I record and then watch the. Yeah, I think I think he does a great job. And as much as we talk about the rallies that Donald Trump holds, and those those are impressive, I guess. Night after night after night, he fills that place up, and he takes on the president to wild applause. And I don't think you can do that unless there is a real groundswell of feeling. So, so one hundred percent of three hundred fifty million people in America. There's like, there's like five hundred people in that audience. I told you it was a dumb idea. I, I already said. <laughs> okay, so so far through the impeachment hearing, I have kind of a moment that I thought really stood out for me. And I, so I want to ask you, if, you know, anything that stood out for you. For me, it was when Ambassador to the U- European Union, Gordon Sondland, uh, gave testimony. I thought it was jaw-dropping. He, he said, yes, there was an attempt to get Ukraine to do the president's political needs or meet them, uh, there were, and that there were a lot of high-level administration people, such as Vice President Mike Pence, who were involved and who knew about it. And they knew about it because there were emails, which, of course, evidence to get into. That day when that came out, I mean, it was, it was, it was like someone going before the committee and saying, yes, oh, by the way, Richard Nixon's taping all this stuff. Right. <laughs> um, but any of you, I mean, any moments where you're like, whether for the Republicans, the Democrats, or Trump reaction, any kind of crystallizing moments that really stuck right. with you from the process, Tim? For, for me, it actually was yesterday when we had the great, uh, press conference when we were announcing the articles of impeachment. And, you know, you see Mr. Chairman Schiff and Mr. Chairman Nadler and, you know, they weren't channeling their Norma Desmond. I think they were channeling <laughs> their law and order prosecutor in that press conference. Dun, dun. And they what struck me in that whole thing is look at how far we've come. Look at all the things we've heard in the press on Twitter. Well, don't pay attention so much to on Twitter <laughs> in the hearings. And what struck me was for all of that, these were the two articles of impeachment that they filed. And you've heard, you know, the Democrats have been very clear in their public utterances and in all the questions in the committee to project a certainty. You know, this for sure happened. And yes, we know this is a political process. This is not a legal process. But they've been approaching it in kind of a legal way. And they've been kind of, you know, layering a legal case. But yet you could argue the two articles of impeachment that they filed are kind of political charges. And I wonder, did they play into the president's hand and the supporters of the president's hand by doing so? So, you know, you're uh, interfering with a congressional investigation. Well, my goodness. I mean, what president hasn't done that over the years? Uh, and then the kind of um, the uh, obstruction of justice, the Ukraine sort of thing. You know, it's a lot of kind of he said, she said, you know, on on television. Hey, folks. Well, not in this room. Where's your but, holiday spirit here? Uh, more more um, eggnog for everyone. Yeah, but <laughs> if you want to make the strongest case against the president... I feel like they could have done a lot stronger job of doing so. And I wonder if these two charges that they filed are going to give a lot of fodder, a lot more fodder to the president and his allies 
than they than they imagined. There has been a lot of talk about whether, and I don't know the answer to this, but the, 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 there have been people questioning whether the Democrats made a mistake by not basing something uh, one of the charges on the Mueller report. Right. You know, right. all this uh, the whole Russia thing. That's you know now that would have could certainly would have had a political angle to it as well. You know, everyone has been tracking that to some degree. But I don't know. Was that what was your thought? I mean, was that a smart move or a, a missed opportunity? Well, if you look at the Clinton impeachment, for example, I think even the Nixon impeachment, um, there they uh, the oh, well, I mean, it wasn't yeah the almost impeachment, the articles of impeachment. Yes. They were much more broad and they were much more numerous, and potentially giving people the opportunity to say, "Oh, um, I voted for these two, but not these ten, right?" And so you sort of give people the wiggle room on the stump to say, "But I just couldn't say no to these two, but I did to these two. And so when you look at Clinton, for example, who was impeached. Um, not all of the articles of impeachment were actually the grounds for impeachment. There were just a few of a long list. And so you kind of gave people that that opportunity. And so, yeah, ex- exactly. The, the question is, do you sort of box people in? Like you're either 100% with us or you're 100% against us. Nobody gets to claim middle ground. And we are not trying to set this up to allow people to have a softer landing to say, I didn't vote for it on like these things, which I thought were crazy, but I was able to do this. So for moderates, they're really, really stuck with sort of where they're going to land on this. They're really going to be painted with a very broad brush because of these these two articles. And you're seeing those moderate Democrats I read, they're even floating a little bit. Should we have a censure push rather than an impeachment push? That and that was also that. during the Clinton during the Clinton impeachment. That was also yeah. uh, an an option that was floated out there. The Democrats floated saying this is not rise to the level of impeachment. Let's have censure as an alternative. Well, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to answer John's question. Oh, <laughs> <really? laughs> well, actually, I have two things to say. First of all, the the obstruction in the Mueller report is clear and present, and it's there. But they had to have Don McGahn. They had to have that attorney come in and say, he told me to post-date a letter to prove that I didn't ask you to fire, uh, was it Comey or fire the the head of the FBI? So if they didn't have Don McGahn, it would be pretty tough to do obstruction. But the Mueller report was very clear on obstruction. But secondly, I thought it was Fiona Hill who said, don't you think? I mean, that, that whole thing about there seems to be this idea, and I've heard it expressed right here in this panel, that somehow Ukraine for some reason, was involved. And that is a Russian fiction, and you are promoting a Russian fiction. And I think that has had legs. I mean, when we saw uh, Ted Cruz on, on Meet the Press, and he said, oh, absolutely. And there was open laughter. I mean, people, I, I think that will be an important moment to say, honestly, that didn't happen. There is no server in the Ukraine. You know, CrowdStrike is a company in Sunnyvale. It's not a Ukrainian it's not owned by Ukrainian. It's owned by a Russian, uh, someone who immigrated to the United States from Russia as a child. None of those things are true. And I think at some point, surely, this is going to stick, isn't it? That we that we've pointed out the truth of what's really what's really going on, isn't it? I mean, we can only hope. But you bring up a good point in the kind of time frame of this. You know, there are a lot of people who, yes, they're working their way through challenging subpoenas and all of that. But if it were me, you know, if I were putting up the case, I'd want to have that testimony and I'd want to have the testimony of all the people so that it's 
A to Z, this is my case and it's, you know, watertight. And that's the question. Do you want to wait and see if you can get Bolton and you can get, you know, McGann? And they didn't think they could. And I think actually what you were saying and what Melissa was saying, I agree with Melissa, as I always do, um, <laughs> dragging this out is is not probably helpful even for the Democrats, and especially the Democrats in a purple district. They would like to say we took a stand, we we made our points, uh, we presented to the American people, and now we're going to move on to the election. Fine. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that's conventional wisdom as to why they narrowed the articles of impeachment. And I heard today this round may not be the only round, that there's a little bit of talk. I think it was um, Congresswoman Karen Bass was interviewed. And there's some rumblings of, you know, you could have this and whatever happens, happens. Then you have the election. You could have multiple rounds of impeachment going forward. That is my nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's move on uh, now that we've solved the impeachment problem. That was easy. All right. Yep. Let's move to a topic where the president looks like he's set to have a big legislative victory. And that's on one of his signature issues, uh, trade. Uh, labor unions, Democratic and Republican members of Congress and the White House look likely to pass the, pass the, excuse me, USMCA, or kind of the neo-NAFTA. Um, and this, it, basically, this bill had, or the, this agreement was signed by the leaders of the three countries, the United States, Mexico, and Canada in November 2018. But it's been basically in limbo because, of course, that month the Democrats had their legislative victory and took over the House. So, there's been a lot of backroom talking and negotiating between U.S. labor unions, uh, the Democrats in uh, the House, and the Mexican negotiators and the White House, U.S. You know, the U.S. trade representative. Um, but they appear to have come to an agreement that has widespread support, apparently, in all of Congress. Um, he said with a shocked. <laughs> hey, what? It's, well, uh, but also an, an issue, as, as Tim was saying earlier, that uh, people, you know, Congress people from both parties are going to be able to go back home and say, you know, we opened up Canada's dairy market, which is part of this deal. Uh, you know, uh, we we uh, defended the U.S. automobile industry. That's part of this deal. It puts quotas on Canada and Mexican car makers. And Mexico is still building the wall, right? Uh, no, but they, they did say they would foot the bill for the impeachment. Um, <laughs> I, stole, I stole that from someone online. Okay. But, uh, Tim, start with you. Uh, what do you make of this? this? This is a pretty big deal. It's a very interesting thing, and it's kind of a win-win for everybody. You know, it's certainly a big win-win for the president. You know, if you remember 2016, and especially in Michigan and Ohio and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, one of the big things that he campaigned on was NAFTA. Now, NAFTA was hurting manufacturing jobs and hurting the auto industry. So just delivering, ripping up NAFTA and passing a better deal, that's a huge political victory. However, it's also a huge political victory for Nancy Pelosi, because if you look, as always in Washington or Sacramento, the devil's in the details. If you look at the details of what's you know, in the plan, it's basically everything that the Democrats wanted. So when I, as a free marketeer, see Mr. Trumpka, the president of AFL-CIO, smiling and saying, you know, this is a great deal, I ask myself, gee, wait a minute, is this such a good deal after all? And you're seeing some senators on the Republican right. side saying... Gee, I don't know that I want to vote for that. So it is a good deal for agriculture. 
um, it is a good deal for, you know, because they, uh, since NAFTA, they were probably one of the biggest winners of NAFTA in opening up uh, markets in Mexico and Canada to U.S. grown products. And for California, that's a huge yeah. deal as well. Um, for the auto industry, so much more of uh, cars will have to be produced in North America and Mexico will have to actually increase wages for auto workers, and there are going to be additional labor issues um, to benefit Mexican workers. And that was one of the big things in the holdup was the enforcement of that. You know, yes, you can say that, but will they actually do it? And that was one of the final negotiated points. And they said, yes, uh, we will. Um, some of the concerns are this whole thing is going to sunset in 16 years. So we could be going through this whole thing again. You know, trade deals are not an easy thing, even when it's mutually beneficial for all three companies or all three countries uh, to sign a deal. So um, I wonder about that and whether that was so great an idea in the end. I have to say, I, I don't think it's great for California necessarily. If you look who's benefiting here, you look at dairy farmers who are going to have access now to Canada. And also you look at the auto industry, right? These are definitely places that are really important for the electoral college. Like, let's not kid ourselves who's going to benefit here. But when it comes to places like California, where you have agriculture, during uh, under NAFTA, there is a you know, 0% tariff, and under this, there's a 0% tariff. And that means that farmers in California have to compete with farmers in Mexico. And when you look at labor-intensive crops like asparagus, for example, um, they cannot compete, right? And they have been begging for help. But no one cares because California is a foregone conclusion. And so when, like, so yeah, there are no trade barriers, but there weren't any trade barriers before and they were suffering and now they're continuing to complain. And so I just want to say, for, at least for the farmers in California, the absence of tariffs, they really wanted some kind of tariffs so that they wouldn't have to continually compete against much, much cheaper stuff, especially again, labor intensive stuff from Mexico. They did not get that in this deal. So you got auto expansion, which is, so we're going from 62.5% of a car to 75% of a car has to be made in one of the three countries. Uh, and there are more parts that have to be paid $16 an hour. The truth is, depending on who you're talking to, this is like 50,000 jobs to 150,000 jobs a year, which is not insignificant for those folks. But this is not a game changer. This is not going to save manufacturing in the U.S., but it will have targeted impacts in those states. And so no party, neither party, can be is in a position to say no to to a trade deal that's going to be benefiting them. But for, for, for states like California, our tech sector will benefit because there's a provision in there that says that you that not none of the three countries can require that servers be housed in those countries um for you know in order to provide online services and also prevents Mexico and Canada from suing based on the content of websites so they get kind of a section 230 exemption so our tech industry in California does benefit but our farmers do not you are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. 
the intellectual property protections, I guess, are strengthened or uh, broadened or something in this. Uh, the, I, not, I admit I do not know the details of that, but I would think that would be a California um, boost. Right. Yeah, for the tech industry. And I would channel Gavin Newsom and say, let's don't make the perfect the enemy of the good. I think this is still, this is a the NAFTA agreement, uh, despite the fact that Trump jumped all over it, probably did need updating. It probably did need some changes. And those dairy farmers do need some help. And those, I'm, n- I'm not denying that. Okay. Well, it seemed like you were to me. I just thought well, 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 Governor Newsom, <laughs> honestly, uh, that's not what I said. No, it's not. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I thought it was their I, first I disagreement. There's a, there's a lot of good out of it. And I think that Nancy Pelosi has shrewdly passed something that she can point to and say, don't tell us we're only focused on the impeachment. We're also doing something for the good of the American people and in, as Melissa says, swing states, states that are going to make a big difference. So I think there's a lot of good to come out of that. It does look a little like a win for Trump. I get it. But it's government. We have to do some of this has to be done. And that's that's not a bad thing. I mean, we've reached the point where we're so polarized that even a good thing seems like a bad thing, but, but that can be a good thing. And I, and I think in this case, it is. I know Nancy Pelosi has said privately, been quoted as saying privately, we, we ate their lunch on this. We, we definitely got everything we wanted. So I think it, it may, may very well work out. I don't think it's a, a negative. I'm just by what Melissa says. I'm not saying it's negative. I'm saying it's not great for California. Melissa, why do you hate America? Why do you hate America? Yes. Apparently. <laughs> actually, if I may, this is actually really great. In, in a lot of countries, when you have different parties like this, you not they're still not able to sort of engage in this. Like, I mean, the one party is literally trying to remove the president. Um, and yet they're still able to come together to pass something that's really important. And so I think that that's, you know, the sort of peaceful transition of power, the ability to continue to have these conversations is, is one of the hallmarks of American democracy that I, that I think is 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 really unique and uh, and and really terrific. Yeah, I'm just. And, and one hour after the impeachment announcement, this was mm-hmm. announced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I, there was even. And I apologize, I forget who. Oh, uh, Lara Trump mm-hmm. even even praised Nancy Pelosi and saying, yeah, "I really respect her. She has all this energy and dedication because basically all day yesterday she was going to press conference to meeting to press conference announcing big things. Uh, well, let's move on to the next topic then. And it's an election. We just had it in November. I wanted to talk about some of the uh, major things that came out of that. And after this, we'll get into what to expect in 2020. But in November, it was in many ways not a giant election, but in some places it had pretty significant effects. Chuck, I wanted to start with you because here in San Francisco, this left-wing city went even further left. Um, and at the same time, the mayor, who's generally considered a moderate, was re-elected handily. What do you make of that? Well, it was, it's kind of a, cl- a classic San Francisco election um, in a lot of ways. I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say probably two of the biggest issues in San Francisco are homelessness and property crime. I mean, people having their cars broken into... It goes on and on and on. Homelessness we've wrestled with for years and years and years. And yet we elected two people who are probably – the district attorney, Chesa, Chesa uh, Bodine, is, um, has already said, I'm not going to prosecute a lot of those crimes. These, I'm not going to criminal, criminalize homelessness. So um, tents, uh, urination in the, in the streets, those kinds of things, I'm not prosecuting those. So you've got this, this pull and push of – um, we want to be a progressive city, and we are a progressive city. 
But we also want to, we just lost the Oracle Convention, what they say, $64, $64 million. Mm-hmm. And part of it was the fact that, that the streets scare people. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not a great thing to be able to walk from Fifth and Mission, Fifth and Market, the top shopping area in San Francisco, to City Hall and pass through an area that looks like a war zone. That's not a good thing. And the fact that there's open drug use there, that's not a good thing. So I don't know that we've addressed that, but I think it was. And I, I think the mayor is. So the other thing that happened was in District, is it District 5? Five? Five. I want to say five, yeah. We also uh, saw a, a Democratic Socialist elected uh, who wants to mill 10,000, 100% uh, below market housing in 10 years, which doesn't pencil out, uh, I don't think, anywhere. He only won by 200 votes, so and he's going to have to run again in November. But again, we're we're kind of push pulling. We're looking. It's it's kind of the classic San Francisco moment. And the only thing I would say is, the concern that I have is that the mayor London Breed actually has a great opportunity here. She served a year of Ed Lee's service, the late Ed Lee, uh, and could possibly be elected for two terms. She could be mayor for nine years. That hasn't happened since Diane Feinstein. She has an opportunity to put a stamp on this city that could mean something. And frankly, from what I'm hearing, she's so discouraged by the fact that the supervisors have a supermajority and she's lost her hand. You know, Susie Loftus was the person that she picked for district attorney and appointed her to district attorney to fill out the, the job for George Gascon against much controversy. Um, she's in a funk. And get out of it. Okay, snap out of it. <laughs> we got a city to lead. So I, I just wish that we would we would see that happening. But again, it's the push pull of San Francisco. Chuck brought up uh, the appointment of Susie Loftus shortly before the election, and uh, opponents of hers cried foul. Interestingly, a lot of those same people were from a part of the city that praised the left wing on the board of supervisors when. London Breed was replaced as the interim mayor by uh, uh, Mark Farrell. Both examples are, are, were really just hardball politics, you know, legal but controversial. Right. Interestingly to me is both failed. Mm-hmm. Susie Loftus did not win in November. Mm-hmm. London Breed, of course, came back and won the special election and then now elected to a full term. Um, it's not a sure thing. Mayor Leap uh, appointed, uh, now I'm going to blank on her name, uh, but she also lost. You know, I mean, it's not a sure thing. Julie Christensen, I think. Julie Christensen, definitely. Um, but as as people in the mayor's office say now, don't tell me that Mark Leno wouldn't have done the same thing. If he'd won, don't tell me he wouldn't have appointed someone. When George Gascon left, that he wouldn't have appointed someone with the idea that that person could build momentum and become the district attorney. Right. Uh, for whatever reason, Susie Loftus didn't do it. We were talking a little bit backstage, you know, I think it's always a temptation when you're a mayor, a governor, when you have these kind of appointments or even if just an open office and you get your person to run, there's a, you're the governor, you're the mayor, you should be, you know, above the clouds, you know, setting the vision. And I don't know, I think it kind of reduces you as a mayor or a governor kind of getting down in the mud and kind of street fight politics that... Sure, of course, you want your majority. Sure, you want your person there. But I think it's kind of better, and I think history kind of proves this, let voters sort it out on their own. Yeah, and I, and I thought you made a really good point, John. That Gavin Newsom was in a very similar situation. He had a very adversarial board of supervisors, and he used his bully pulpit. He made big pronouncements. He had big ideas and advanced them, and the people of San Francisco appreciated that. That, that can be done, but 
Well, you know, it's, awesome. it's when you look at, there are things that people don't like about the government in San Francisco, things like ranked choice voting, things like district voting. And you wonder, how did that ever happen? Well, it happened because of elections and weird off times like this one. Right. And so in, in, usually when you have these like primary elections or other sort of like one off elections, the electorate is more conservative in some places. Not so in San Francisco. In San Francisco, when you have like an off election, that's when you can put in all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, and folks on the left are really motivated to come out. I think if we'd had this election in November of 2019, I don't think that Chessa would have won even it wouldn't have even November been close. Of 2020, I'm sorry, November 2020. I don't think it would have even been close. But because the people who were watching this, the people who were invested, um, were a lot of activists, you ended up with something that is not the same as, say, a poll flawed as they are, uh, would be of the city. Um, but people just don't pay attention and they don't vote. And, uh, and in San Francisco, that means things shift to the left. Sometimes, sometimes they shift to the right, but, but here the distillation is to the left. And that's what we saw, uh, in this election. And I have to say, I don't think Mayor Breed did Susie Loftus any favors by appointing her. I think there were people who were supporting Susie Loftus who were still really turned off by what they saw as just sort of rank cronyism uh and said she can win on her own you don't need to put her in there and give her this sort of leg up as an incumbent she can win this head to head you know stop it it looks bad (laughs) uh and so they may not have voted or they you know for there any number of things that could have resulted i just i don't think that that ultimately was uh was the right call um, for the mayor to make their to make that appointment, because for a lot of folks, I think not only supporters of Susie, Susie Loftus, but people who didn't know her, the first thing they heard about her was like she was appointed. She gets the job. She yeah. got she got this like special thing that the mayor just kind of anointed her with. And that I, might have turned people off. Excuse me. Yeah, no, go, please. I foolishly thought that was not going to be a problem, and it was a problem. That's that's for sure. But the other thing that you have to do with ranked choice voting is you have to have a strategy, and she had running against her Nancy. Nancy Tung was also running in the race. Uh, Susie Loftus, Jessa Bodine, and Nancy Tung. Nancy Tung had huge support in the Chinese community, and that was a key. That's a key constituency in San Francisco. And Susie Loftus and Nancy Tung should have reached an agreement together to support each other, so that the second, as we have ranked choice voting, so that the second vote would go to them. And in fact, what happened was they were virtually split. Chessa got an enormous number of those votes. When Nancy Tung uh, was was uh, what are they called ruled out uh, not voted out uh, eliminated uh, yeah. Elimin- yeah. eliminated such a simple word um, <laughs> so that didn't happen and, th- and that's a flaw in strategy but that's what you have to do with ranked choice voting which I mean whatever this is how we got Ross Mercurimi we had you know we had uh, three candidates two of them could not reach an agreement on on uh, on ranked choice voting and Ross Mercurimi who never seemed to be the, the candidate of choice, ended up being the sheriff, and, and things went downhill from there. But that's, that's one of the problems. Tim, uh, let's talk about some of the races elsewhere around the country in November. Uh, several governor races with split results. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think the parties did? did? Did any of those victories or losses augur further, you know, in, in 2020 or other right. races? Or were they very local, you know, state reasons that those particular people won? I think they were all pretty local reasons. I think the election that got 
the the biggest coverage, you know, was the election for the governor of Kentucky. And I think a lot of people were surprised that, you know, a Democrat won the governor of Kentucky. Um, Kentucky, actually, surprisingly, has had a lot of Democratic governors, even in the kind of, you know, the 90s shift toward more Republican representation in the South. His father had been governor, right? Uh, the new governor. Yeah. Uh, uh, this year. This year. Yep. Yep. Uh, I think with that race, um, I, I think that's a, a, you know, a clear example of, gee, you better be nice to folks, because if you're not nice to folks in a very close election, uh, you might find out uh, yourself on the losing end of the election. And uh, I, I think that really explains everything there. I heard... Um, I've heard him speak before. I've heard him talk about, I heard him at a conference kind of go through his policy agenda. Um, you know, it's an agenda that I think Kentucky probably would have liked, you know, if you were, if it was a normal, you know, kind of election, if he was a normal, uh, kind of run of the mill Republican. But when you're kind of an unlikable guy and you put your thumb in the eye of even Republican leadership in the legislature, you know, Karma is a real thing, and it happens sometimes. <laughs> Wasn't sure that's what you were going to say. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, and but the kind of, you know, there's the discussion of, well, because of that, is Kentucky in play? Is Senator McConnell in play in 2020? A, I'd never bet a bit against Mitch McConnell in any election. But B, Republicans actually won Every other office, I mean, they had a great night in every other office, including the young, dynamic African-American who was elected as attorney general, who's going to be, you're going to hear from him a lot. So I don't think Kentucky was a statement on the Republican vote. I think it was a statement on the incumbent. Louisiana is kind of a wild state and, you know, stuff happens. And well, I and, think, and, and John, yeah, the and incumbent like John Bell Edwards is in really. many ways conservative. He's yeah. pro-life. He has done a number of Democratic uh, uh, specialties, if you will. I mean, increase, increasing Medicare and, and, and things, but uh, on, other, on some social issues, yeah. quite conservative. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a, I think Louisiana is always a hard state to handicap and read anything into election results. I think the more of a character you are, usually the better you do in Louisiana elections, although... John, of, John Bell Edwards is not related to the former Governor right. Edwards who went to jail. Who was a character with a capital C. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think the other thing that's very interesting, and I think political scientists will want to explore is Virginia and how they have yeah. changed from kind of red to purple to kind of overwhelmingly blue. And sure, Trump is a factor. I think there's probably other, probably population shifts are a factor there. But I think that's a fascinating one that warrants more analysis and more people way smarter than me to look at. But I think that's a fascinating one to look at and watch going forward in the years ahead, because that how things go there, um, you know, that's going to affect congressional races in 2020. Those congressional races are going to be very interesting to watch in Virginia in 2020, because the Democrats who won, they kind of ran against Republicans who may not have been the warmest, friendliest, fuzziest people, you know, that made a good connection with voters. Yeah. Well, let's now turn our eyes to 2020 and just do some presidential uh, campaign check-ins. Um, Chuck, Senator Kamala Harris ended her campaign. 
Uh, it had gotten off to a big start, huge crowds. Yep. Uh, why did it falter? What do you think? Well, um, later on, we're going to pick politician of the year, and I'm going to pick Kamala Harris. Really? And the reason is, I thought she had it all. You know, she she was a young liberal woman of color. She had great credentials. Uh, she seemed like she she had a terrific opening. She had a great debate. And in the end of the day, and it, I think it's a real question on our politics, where we are in politics, where we are in the United States, those very things may have worked against her. And I said to my wife the other day, I'll bet Kamala Harris wishes something else would happen because every major news outlet has done a what happened to Kamala Harris story, you know. And I'm, I'm sure there was some dysfunction, and I'm sure that the campaign was not run as smoothly as, as it might have been. Um, but I... I don't think she found her footing. I don't think she found her issue. I don't think she had a, a direction. I, I was struck uh, at one point she was asked about uh, an important issue that she really cared about. And she said infrastructure. And infrastructure, that's, that sounds fine. But then she went on a tangent about how the people that she represents often have to work, uh, like in San Francisco, you have to work at a job in San Francisco, but you have to live far, far away. And you might be driving down the highway, and the highway hasn't been well repaired, and you hit a pothole, and that causes your tire to burst, and then that costs... And I thought, that is really the issue that we're going to base our campaign on? We've got Medicare for all, we've got the president, we've got so many different things. And it, it just didn't seem like she had something that, that made me want to say, that's right, or... or Frankly, that's wrong. I, but you've got a firm point and a, and a, and a place that, that we can say that's what she thinks. Yeah. And I never, I never felt that she had that. Um, Tim, we've seen Democratic billionaires Tom Steyer and Mike Bloomberg throw their hats in the ring, throw their wallets in the ring. Um, <laughs> fairly, I mean, I can't say it's late in the primary process. The primaries haven't actually started, but fairly late in the process of having a cadre of candidates. Does this maybe signal a weakness of the folks who are out there, or is this just impatience of billionaires? I mean, what do you think? I heard that Mayor Bloomberg is going to spend $100 million nationally between now and the end of the year, and $14 million in California alone. So you're going to get used to him on your TV screens over the next couple of weeks. I think it's interesting... I think you're right that it is, you know, probably a sign, you know, you could argue that, you know, there's kind of the uh, progressive lane of the primary, mm -hmm. and then there's kind of the moderate slash establishment lane. And I would argue a B Mayor Bloomberg getting into the race is a, a statement saying, you know what, I don't think Joe Biden can get the job done. There's an opportunity for me, so I'm going to spend God knows how many hundreds of millions of dollars to make my case. Will it work? Now, California, we've had a history where, you know, billionaire and very rich candidates have not fared very well. You know, just ask Governor Whitman and Governor Checky how well, you know, spending tens of millions of dollars has done. But here's the what I think would be interesting. We're in a very bunched up primary right now. And... I don't know that I'd say there is a front runner. You know, there's probably three or four people that have about 20 to low 20 percent to mid teens. If we keep that going, hey, if you're spending 300, 400, 500 million dollars and that gets you up to he's at about five percent now nationally and in California. Well, 
you're going to go up a little bit, you know, certainly because of name recognition. Well, if you keep this kind of bunched together field, hey, maybe he gets up to 12, 13, 14 percent, and that's enough to win. Um, but remember, the big thing is you got to get 15 percent to get delegates. It's delegates are the name of the game. So, you know, uh, he might be spending hundreds of millions of dollars to say, look at that. I got 13 percent of the vote in the California primary and zero delegates. <laughs> Uh, someone in the audience asks, who are the next candidates to drop out? Any <laughs> predictions? Well, well, Tilly dropped out before she even, she even had to. She's, she's dropped out of the debate before she even had to. Who? She's dropped out of the race, Tilly, Yeah. Tulsi. Tulsi. Oh, Tulsi, yeah. She hasn't dropped out of the race, no. though. But what I'd say to Tim is, I, I don't think Biden can do it either, but I don't think it is an opportunity for Bloomberg. First of all, if I was spending $100 million on an ad, I'd do more than one ad. I've seen that ad 50 yeah. times. I'm so sick of yeah. that ad. Yeah. Okay. And the other thing I would say is everybody's hearing this now because it is a, it is kind of a broken field. Rahm Emanuel, at kind of a roast, said the other day, um, I hear Hillary Clinton has said many, many, many people have asked me to get back in the race. Yeah. And he said, are any of those people in Michigan, Wisconsin, or Pennsylvania? <laughs> right. Right. And by the way, are any of those people Democrats? Because I don't think you should get back in the race. Right. Right. <laughs> Right, right. But there's, but there's always a political consultant who can come yep. to a Bloomberg or a Hillary Clinton and say, there's an opening for you. Here it is. It's the middle lane. You're going to be fine. And I, I, I will conclude by saying, I can't remember who said it, but somebody said, this is an analogy like you go to a restaurant and there's a whole bunch of food that looks great. Everything on the menu looks great. Do you then say to yourself, I wish there were more things on the menu? <laughs> you know? Right. Well, to answer the question... Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Mic drop. (laughs) Cory Booker, I think, is the next one to drop out of the race. Even though he's great and, uh, you know, he's a a wonderful human person. And uh, but I think he's uh, it's harder and harder for him to make the case that that he needs to be in. And it's there's financial reasons as well. And he needs to run for re-election and not be primaried. And so I think uh, he is, if not the next person, like one of the next handful yeah. is going to drop out of the race. No, no insult intended to Cory Booker, but to be honest, every time I hear about him in the race, I'm like, oh, I forgot he was in He's the race. He's still in the yeah. race. Yeah. 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 I don't know how many of you saw this story, and it's already been denied by Vice President Joe, Bi- former Vice President Joe Biden and his, his camp, but there was a report in Politico that Biden had indicated to his advisors he was considering only serving one term, presumably paving the way for his vice president to succeed him. This is supposedly a reaction to people worried about his age. He would be 82 in 2024 for any re-election campaign, um, as well as a signal to younger uh, voters that he would step aside for the next generation of Democratic leaders, which I guess would give Generation X their brief moment in the sun before the millennials swamp it. But <laughs> Tim was, I mean, assuming there is some truth to this, good move or way to announce you're a lame duck before you even get in? Yeah. I mean, it seems like that kind of discussion, there's always an article or two like that every four years, certainly affecting whoever the oldest candidate is yeah. in the race. Yeah. And it just doesn't seem to me like a good idea. You know, you've got maybe a year, you know, maybe your first hundred days, really, to get your agenda going. 
Well, if you are a lame duck from the start, I can wait you out four years. I may not be able to wait you out eight years, but I could wait you out four years. So I think it really, it does the opposite. It reinforces the doubt about your ability to serve and to serve four or eight years. Now, for me, I'd say I reject that out of hand. I'm strong enough. I can serve, you know, Elect me for four terms. I'm ready to go. Margaret Thatcher, I'm going to go on and on. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I don't think people's concerns are that he can't serve the four to eight year. Like, I think people, to the extent they're concerned about his age, people are concerned about one to four. Yeah. Uh, so saying, oh, but it's fine for this, for at this point, but not at this point. Uh, you know, that's really, I think that's really splitting hairs. I don't think it really resolves the issue that some people have, and to your point, may even make it worse. Yep. Okay. Well, this is the end of the year. Pretty much, you made it. Congratulations. <laughs> yes. We're all here together. Um, so let's take a bit of time to go over some uh, political highlights and lowlights of 2019, locally, nationwide, <laughs> statewide, whatever you want. I'm going to steal your answer. <laughs> no ca- eyes on your own no work. Peeking, <laughs> so let's start with the big one. Who, who's your candidate, if you will? doesn't have to be a candidate, your nominee for political person of the year. Person in the front row says Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> Tim, who do you say? I have a different answer. <laughs> <laughs> Mine actually um, is Nikki Haley. Wow. Because oh. I... Hey. I, hey, folks. Because if you look at it, A, she navigated being UN ambassador, I think with few... You know, big criticisms of her record. She has navigated six. She's left the Trump administration on her own terms with everybody pretty much happy with her. She's had a very successful book launch tour. Um, she's actually on the kind of Republican circuit. She's kind of a rock star out there. And whether Trump wins or loses, she has set herself up to be, I would say, the odds on favorite to be the Republican candidate in 2024. Okay. Except for that, except for that litter of bodies under the bus that she threw. I, yes. I, I mean, I, yeah, but I mean, the fact that she left the the, the Trump White House she left right on good terms would... without either being frog walked out or yep. Yep. you know being fired by Twitter or something. Right. right. That that shows skill. Frog walk is a great term, though, John. I have to say. Yeah, I think that was. I think that was good. I I did think the whole idea of throwing John Kelly and uh, who was at Mathis under the bus was. Matthew Dowd said that we owe Trump the the uh, gratitude for revealing who Nikki Haley really is, who is a, who is very opportun- opportunistic right. and very ambitious. She may a politician is opportunistic and ambitious. Never heard of that. Stop it. <laughs> I know. I know. Okay, Chuck. I'm sorry to shatter it. Well, as I said, mine is Kamala Harris for the reason that I think when she began her campaign, it seemed like a moment in American politics. It seemed like we had something really going here. Maybe building on the Obama legacy, uh, building on the California legacy. Uh, she had it all. And it has fallen apart. And I think that says something about her campaign, certainly. But also about American politics, it makes me wonder if a woman of color is someone who is electable in American politics. So, Well, I'll say this. If you look at the crosstabs of the polls <coughs> around Kamala Harris, black people were not supporting her. Yep. This is not an issue... The people who were supporting her were wealthy white people. Mm -hmm. If you go in and look at the actual demographics, 
Don't look at like the top line. Go into the Excel spreadsheet and check who's actually supporting her and what exactly that looks like. It was not white rich people were supporting her. Her supporters looked a lot like Hillary Clinton supporters. College educated white women often, but certainly people making $100,000 a year or more. Black people were not supporting her almost at all. It was 2%, 3%. Whatever. And you can talk, you can say whatever that reflects about, you know, the, the electorate, but I'm saying that it is not, it was not the lack of white people support that is what led to her dramatically low poll numbers. And it, it, for whatever some. reason. That's right. yeah. <laughs> there was some white, lack of white people support, but, but there was also a real lack of uh, both Hispanic and black people support as well. And maybe it's because they perceived that she couldn't get elected. There may be sort of a, a way to go down, uh, you know, sort of and, and discuss that. But when it comes down to it, it was not, you know, it wasn't. It wasn't that black women really wanted her to be president and they were coming out for her in big numbers. And everyone else said no, that she didn't have that support of even that, of even that community. Okay. Just real, I mean, yeah. Pete Buttigieg, people complained that he was not getting black support. But it was pointed out that neither Kamala Harris nor Cory Booker had much more support either. So okay. They support Joe Biden. If you look, again, if you look mm-hmm. at the crosstabs. Yep. So. Uh, some uh, votes from the audience. Uh, quite a few folks for Nancy Pelosi. Russia's president of uh, Vladimir Putin. Oh. Uh, uh. China's leader, Xi. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Mitch McConnell. Uh, Actually, who will have his finger on the, the yes. trial in the Senate? I would have to say, though, um, I, I actually agree. Nancy Pelosi is is right up there if you think about the. But she's also been um, speaker for more than a year. So if we just narrow okay. it to the year, and even what I'm about to say probably traverses that. Um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, I think politically is who else gets to wake up in the morning and say, "All right, we're going to ban political ads that." have pandas in them, whatever it is, like what he gets to unilaterally determine so much of what people see. Uh, and his dictates have such wide reaching consequences, both here and in other nations. Um, and I don't say this as necessarily an award, like as a, as a, as a medal. Uh, but I say this in, in terms of like who is the most consequential person politically right now. I think among, of course, President Trump and Nancy Pelosi, we have to count someone like Mark Zuckerberg, whose literal whims, uh, can really, uh, determine how things turn out in certain ways in certain places. And I'm not saying that's a great thing, but I'm saying, his uh, his importance and his ability to have his his ideas carried out is really uh, is really important to recognize. Hey, your Facebook page was just deleted. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> really? <laughs> well, next next category: uh, biggest political surprise of 2019. I think it's Nancy Pelosi, who has kicked butt day in and day out. Are you surprised though? And- Yes, because at the start, <laughs> at the start of this, after this election, there was talk that too old, mm-hmm. Pastor Prime, out of touch. We're gonna move. We're gonna move on to a new generation. Finally, we've elected all these new people, and she has been masterful. Quick quest, quick, quick answer, please. So we're running out of time. Uh, she, as part of her deal with the the uh, left wing of her party to get the not, you know become speaker again, she said reportedly that she would. She kind of pulled a Biden. I will only do this for two terms. Mm-hmm. Should she ad- should she honor that? Yes, really? I think she should. I think she should. I think that I, I think she's shown the way, and I think 
at, at some point, I think it's time to move on. I do if believe there's any Democrat in the House of Representatives who has the, whether you like her or not, who yep. has the masterful control of the legislature, no. legislative process no, that and, she does. And the clout. No, but that's what has to happen. That's, that's how the government works is that we have to refill those leaders and do that. But uh, yeah, I think that's fair. She should be teaching that to someone. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. Melissa, I agree uh, biggest political surprise of the year. Uh, the weakness of Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Honestly, so I was talking to my husband. He said, um, "He said, you know, when you look at the stock market, you uh, you buy on the rumor and you sell on the facts, right?" He said, "You know, you buy because you hear a stock is hot, but then when the earnings report comes out, you sell." Uh, and it seemed like a lot of folks bought Joe Biden because of what we remember about him or what we think about him or the idea of him. But then once you see him on stage and you actually hear him speak, you sell, <laughs> and that seems to be kind of what a lot of people are doing. And it's it is what has invited Bloomberg to the race. Um, surprisingly has not resulted in like some help for Amy Klobuchar, but, um, but I think people thought, Oh, it's his to run away with. And as a cousin to that surprise and, and what has led to this, the second surprise is the fact that we still have so many candidates um, and it's December and you would think that there would be fewer, but his weakness, I think um, has encouraged these folks to stay in the race uh, and other folks to enter the race. I'm going to say the rise of Mayor Pete. Who would have thought a year ago? See, I got you on my side. There you go. (laughs) Who would have thought a year ago at this time? I wonder how many people in this room had ever even heard of him, let alone knew he was running for president or or any of that. We were pleased to actually have him speak at the Commonwealth Club. And I'm sure a number of you were there just as his star was starting to rise. Uh, And, mm -hmm. and, you know, he was starting to attract crowds. So good choice. Okay. Very briefly, because we're we're getting short on time, a political prediction for 2020. Tim? I'm going to stick with the prediction that I made the last time that I was here, and that is that whoever the Democratic candidate is in the general election, Donald Trump will not debate them in the fall. Wow. Okay. Chuck? This is probably wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I predict Amy Klobuchar will be in the top three in the next three months. Okay, Melissa? Uh, I predict that in California, Andrew Yang will be in the top three. In the he is the one person I I stop when I, you know, we all listen to debates while we're doing other stuff. He's the one person I stop what I'm doing. You stop chopping the onions or whatever. And you go, what does he have to say? Very interesting. I think he's got a lot of uh, a much broader appeal than people give him credit for. Okay. Well, let's do our news quiz, folks, before we release you into the semi-rainy night. If you've been here before, you know how we do it. If not, I'm going to ask a question. If you think you know the answer, raise your hand. Don't just shout it out, no matter how many cups of wine you had. <laughs> uh, I'll call on you, and if you've got it right, Pierce is going to be our chocolate delivery man. So he'll give you some chocolate. First question. The broadcast networks were completely shut out of what awards nominations announced on Monday? Uh, right there along the edge, sir, in the... No, but right behind you? Golden Globes, that's correct. Uh, Pete Freights died this week. He was known as the face of what charity campaign? Back there? The Ice Bucket Challenge, that's correct. It raised uh, more than $200 million to fight ALS. Okay, this has worked on mice. And now it is being tested on a cocker spaniel. Geneticist George Church says we're close to being able to do what on humans? Uh, they might be using that, but that's not what, what, what are they trying to change? Anyone? 
right there in the white. They are doing that, but that's not what this project is about. <laughs> right, right behind. Good guess. I mean, you're you're right, but diff- sorry. Reverse aging. That is okay. correct. Right, wow. We got that taken care of. Okay, Wait, boomer. What is that study? <laughs> <laughs> George Church. Google it. Okay. A former NBA player who now plays for a Chinese professional basketball team. He was fined fourteen hundred dollars for not doing something during the playing of China's national anthem. What did he not do? Did you see this? Right along the line there. He was not looking at the Chinese flag. That is correct. Mm. Remember that if you ever play in a Chinese basketball league. Okay. Uh, during a career as a law professor, what presidential candidate made nearly $2 million on consulting and private legal work? Sir, and Elizabeth Warren, that is correct. Okay, uh, at least 16 people have died following the eruption of a volcano in what country this week? (laughs) There's no way I'm going to guess who was the first one, so this is going to be kind of subjective. In the hat, I know your hand went up pretty quickly. New Zealand is correct. Okay, Seema Verma. She's the head of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. She has requested the federal government reimburse her for $47,000 in jewelry and other items that were taken from her vehicle while she was making a public appearance. Where was she appearing? Right there in the front. More specifically, two rows behind you? No, 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 no. Sir, the Commonwealth Club. (laughs) Literally on the street behind us. Look at that. Should should we look under the couch and try to find it? That's so great. Is that our bonus gift? We'll find her jewelry on the couch? Yeah, we we actually took it, and as soon as the heat dies down, we're going to fence it. Um, What famous San Franciscan told Secretary of State Mike Pompeo he won't be loved until he stops enabling Donald Trump? Ma'am? Linda Ronstadt. That's correct. Mm -hmm. Though I think she mostly lives in Arizona now. (laughs) Newly released documents purport to show that the administrations of George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump have all lied about what? Sir, your hand was up. The Afghan war. That's correct. Okay, almost done. Uh, We learned this week that Christopher Steele, the former British spy whose report on Donald Trump caused so many, well, kind of gave birth to a thousand accusations, we learned that he was friends with what Trump family member? Oh, yeah. Try again. Sorry? Ivanka Trump, the president's daughter. With a promise to defend America against socialism, a congressional candidate in uh, Texas, excuse, or congressional campaign in Texas, was announced by the grandson of what famous oh. Texan? Also a politician. Ma'am, in the second row. George Herbert Walker Bush, that is correct. Yeah. Uh, his name is Pierce Bush. Also Pierce. The grandson of George Herbert Walker Bush. Pierce is a nonprofit executive seeking to replace Republican Pete Olson, for those of you playing at home. Uh-oh. How did presidential candidate... Andrew Yang, celebrate opening his campaign office in New Hampshire. Videos and photos of this went around. Way in back there, I see a hand. He was spraying whipped cream into the mouths of his kneeling volunteers. Yes. They they all wanted their $1,000. They didn't want whipped cream. And you say, don't all candidates do that? No, they don't. (laughs) Not on camera. Right. And uh, his uh, campaign manager quickly stopped it. So, political leaders, journalists, and even some members of the Swedish Academy boycotted Tuesday's Nobel Literature Ceremony due to the Nobel winner Peter Henke's support for what regime? 
Mam in the back. Yes. Slobodan Milosevic's uh, regime, which has been accused, oh. of course, of genocide. By the way, in 2014, Hanke called for the Nobel Prize in Literature to be abolished and said it was a circus. So Very forgiving. There yes. yes. At the Nobel Yes. And now he's a clone. Okay. And Pierce, how many more do we have left in there? Two? Okay. Following a shooting at a Navy base, the U.S. Navy grounded 300 nationals from what country? Sir, in the front row. Sorry? Saudi Arabia. That is correct. The uh, shooter is from Saudi Arabia, of course. United Auto Workers union members voted in favor of a new four-year labor contract with which big automaker this week? Sir? No. No. Sir? Fiat Chrysler. That is correct. If you didn't win chocolate or you didn't win a new union labor contract with Fiat Chrysler, we're still glad you're here. Hope you had a fine time with our holiday reception. We'll be back here to kick off 2020 on January 24th, our first Friday evening program. I want to thank our great panel today, Melissa Kane, Tim Anaya, and C.W. Nevius. Thank you all for being here, and thanks for everyone watching and listening online. Have a great week and have a great end of the year.